Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week on our final episode of the podcast for 2022, we look back at the year that's gone, what went well, what didn't, and what to expect in 2023. Plus, we have a conversation with spiritual leader Roshi Joan Halifax, and we have music from Windsor. Thanks for being here. So friends, this is it, wrapping up another year, another big year in the big decisive decade for climate action. Um, it is possible to look at the moment we're in with both encouragement of all the progress we've made and a sense of despondency that time is ticking and the big jump has not yet been made. So let's give ourselves a few minutes now before we speak to Roshi Joan to just reflect on the year that we've had. Um, casting our minds back to January, we kicked off the year with this amazing deep Guyan episode with Stefan Harding trying to help people connect with the natural world. It feels like a very long time ago. Um, how's it gone? I mean, it's going to be very difficult to boil that down into a few minutes of discussion, but I'd love to just begin by exploring where that question takes you. What was the question again? I've started reading a WhatsApp note. <laughs> Stefan Harding asked, what question? No, it's not Stefan Harding. The oh, question oh, I'm no. asking is, how's, it's a small question, how has the year, how's it been for you, Paul? Okay, so, yeah. so here's the thing. First of all, I've been learning you've got to pay a lot of deep attention because if you don't pay When I'm talking, certainly, yeah. <laughs> Look, here's the thing. I would say to some extent, uh, the year was, in my estimation, dominated by the invasion of Ukraine. Indeed. And there are two things that came out of that for me. The first one... It's obviously the tragedy and the agony and the extraordinary bravery of the Ukrainian people. Um, but two incredibly positive things actually I think have come out of this tragedy. The first one is that uh, there's less of a grey area between what I would describe as, uh, you, you know, kind of functioning demo democracies and open societies and essentially dictatorships with a closed down media where the, 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 the public, the citizens are kind of imprisoned and oppressed we were all thought they were all kind of the same and everyone was trading and it was like globalization and all governments are the same. Well, we've suddenly discovered mm. that things like democracy and the open society are incredibly important. And we have to recognize that as, as we, we faced with the sort of the evils potentially of, of populisms of left or right that may come to threaten our democracies. But the second thing is I just read this uh, little bit of research that, that was done before the show that renewables are poised to overtake coal as the largest source of electricity generation by early 2025. That's not long. The International Energy Agency. And that's not investment. Saying, that's actual installed capacity. That's actual installed output in, in, in electricity. But here's the thing. It's a pattern driven in large part by the global energy crisis linked to the war in Ukraine. So again, there are horrible aspects of this and there are people saying drill more, but the you know we need to remember that behind all of this, fossil fuels have been shown to be incredibly expensive and incredibly unreliable. Mm. And that's driving the whole world towards decarbonization. So that's that's me on a on a big positive note. Christiana? Yeah, I would I would agree with that, Paul, especially the fact that the Ukrainian war, which has been longer than any of us expected, I think we started the year thinking, okay, we're getting close to the end. But the fact that this has drawn out throughout the whole year is my biggest surprise this year, I would say. And both a positive and a negative surprise. The negative surprise is that it has cost so many innocent lives in Ukraine and really brought out those incredibly brave and courageous people to push beyond any human boundaries could have been expected to push. So kudos to them for everything that they have uh, done there. On the positive side from the climate perspective, as Paul has mentioned, this has really been a watershed moment for fossil fuels. The fact that uh, that it has now been shown that fossil fuels can be so easily weaponized that they can drive their own cost, the cost of energy, but also the cost of everything else so incredibly quickly and be the motoring force behind global inflation. It, it, I, I'm hoping that, and I'm seeing already signs, that we're just sick 
and tired of this manipulation and this dependence on fossil fuels. And that that is, as it already has started, but is uh, now accelerating, the move over to domestic, clean, uh, ubiquitous, and accessible clean energy. And I think, you know, we will look back uh, at this year and be incredibly sad about the negative impacts that it has had and be grateful for the positive impact that it will have had on decarbonization, as Paul has said. Where on decarbonization, if I'm going to choose one, but I have so many bits of good news. <laughs> Honestly, I think the legislations in plural in the just, United States. Just before we go, just before we go to legislation, I mean, let's just let's just pause and re- point out that when all of this happens, this very good outcome from a tragic situation that you've both pointed to. When this happened, we came on this podcast with guests, and we did, we did quite a bit of hand wringing and said. You know, we don't know what's going to happen next. There's a, there are voices out there saying, drill, baby, drill, expand domestic production. We were all really worried that was going to go the other direction. The positive narrative that you've just put together, which I completely agree with, was really uncertain. And so we should all, it's it's important at moments like this to look back and realise things went well in certain areas, right? So that is, despite that tragic situation, that's a really positive outcome. And you're about to talk about another one. No, I'm not sure that it's another one. I think they're all it's interrelated. The okay, um, yeah. Yeah, I I think the legislations, the pieces of legislation that we have out of the United States, the three of them, because we have learned um, from just recent episodes that there are three pieces of legislation are absolutely brilliant in the United States. And the fact that Europe is sort of um, playing a little bit of um, uh, of uh, a lost uh, or a forgotten sibling and uh, and just a little bit complaining like, whoa, 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 why did you rush ahead of us? Is actually excellent. Yeah. I think the race to the top is exactly what we need to uh, to have here. And that is what the United States has done. Then, of course, just so that we know that this is not a walk in the park, the next two years are going to be really tough for uh, for the White House and for all of the other administration agencies, but um, but they will be guided by by these legislations. And so I think that in terms of domestic policy definitely stands out um, for me as one of the very, very exciting things that happened this year toward toward the end of the year, but incredibly, um, incredibly exciting, actually. And I mean, on that one, it's a sort of small point in a way, but well, it's not a small point, but the the people in the US who have fought for decades for this, thank you, because this has been such a fight to get to this point. I remember after we adopted the Paris Agreement in 2015, Christiana, I would ask people, has adopting an international binding climate treaty improved your personal quality of life to the people who are involved in it? And people would think for a minute and say, yes, I actually feel happier now that we're moving in a positive direction. And I've been asking the same thing of people in the US who've been working on this. And my God, they deserve this. This has been such a long fight and it's transformative. Um, As we heard, Ira and Bill are going to change the world. And there was that despair. Sorry, go Christiana. And let's not forget the other one, the other piece of legislation that is actually fostering the creation or the production of microchips in the United States. Awesome. Okay. The chips, Bill. Yes. We okay, just need a way yeah. of remembering it. Iron Bill eating chips. Iron Bill, eating, Iron Bill with <laughs> chips. No, that's great. We love the, the, the tech economy. I mean, just touching on the biodiversity cop that's going on as we speak, I'm just very positive that there is a biodiversity cop. I was talking before, last week about how you know, biodiversity is kind of like our balance sheet. And I think it's quite helpful in climate change. We often talk about flows, I think you would call them, Uh, you know, things like, well, how much renewable energy and how much greenhouse gas emissions, but stocks, the biodiversity is the stock, right? And and it's actually the sort of machine that the flows interact with. So uh, just one thing, I mean, you know, net, we may be losing forestry, but over the past 20 years, there's also been an increase of 130 million hectares of forest, bigger than Peru. So whilst many places are cutting down, um, actually 36 countries are now gaining more trees than they're losing, uh, including Ireland, Poland, Denmark, the Netherlands, Bangladesh. I was thinking about uh, India, by the way, also in Pakistan, huge countries. And I was thinking about various entrepreneurs coming forward. One, uh, Jeremy Leggett, who's a, an old timer who set up Solar Century, one of the very first renewables com- companies that, that really did quite well. 
He's been expanding forests in Scotland, buying more and more land, getting scientists involved. I think we're seeing this whole, wasn't it last week uh, that Sanjan spoke about this, this kind of nature entrepreneurship? I think that's incredibly exciting. And and since we're on the topic of plants, um, I have been incredibly touched by um, the study that was published in Trends in Plant Science. Um, a study, I, I, I hope you're all ready to listen to this because it is very unusual. The study shows that plants, we're now in the plant kingdom, not in the human uh, society, that plants are teaching their offspring how to adapt to climate change. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mother plants, because as we know, I, I don't. there are quite a few studies about mother trees. By the way, I haven't even read anything about father trees. I'm sure there's some of those too. <laughs> but mother trees uh, especially are through something called epigenetics, which doesn't change the DNA sequence. They are showing the new saplings that are coming out how to adapt to climate change. I think that is incredibly exciting for many different reasons. Um, A, because we have always assumed that all the damage that we have caused on nature is uh, is something that where nature is on the recipient side, on the passive recipient side. And what this is saying is, no, it is not a passive recipient. They are actually engaging in active resilience. And we will talk much more about resilience with our, um, our guest today. But isn't that fascinating that even plants are exercising their resilience and teaching how to deal with more drought, with higher temperatures, to all those saplings and let's call them plant generations that are coming after them. Yeah, that's it amazing. Is, yeah. It is just amazing. And the adaptability and, and the resilience of nature is incredible. In that regard. The yeah, resilience I mean, of nature and, and something from which we should learn, right? Yeah. If plants can be resilient, why are we not? But I'm getting ahead of myself because that's the conversation with Roshi Joe. We, we're trying to preserve biodiversity. And you know what? I think biodiversity is probably also trying to preserve us. But if we get it wrong and we go, biodiversity will continue. Nature is way, way bigger than us. This is really all about whether we're sticking around at the biodiversity party because fundamentally um, we lack diversity and a richness of our, in our ecosystems and we're the ones who are fragile. We're the ones who are going to have the algal bloom, lose the oxygen and then dump, it's gone. But on the post side, we're talking about it <laughs> widely and having a cop. So that's good. That's true. Um, now, I know we're going to get to Rossi Joan in a few minutes, but um, there's uh, so many good things have happened this year. I mean, we'll come back after the interview and we'll talk about a few more things. One that I just have to point out because it's very exciting, very recent and potentially transformative. A few years ago, we had um, a role helping Google X think through their technology strategy with relation to climate change. And as part of that, I would once a month get on the phone with their chief scout and have this kind of absolute firestorm of data around where climate tech is, what's coming. And the piece that he, they would always talk about that would blow my mind would be fusion energy. And I would say, yeah, but you're nuts, right? This is decades away. And they would go through in meticulous detail and talk with the patience that was required to explain someone with zero experience <laughs> like me why this was not decades away. It was really close. And we're recording now on Tuesday, the 13th of December. And today... The U.S. Department of Energy announced this is for the first time ever a successful fusion experiment in which they fired energy at a piece of fuel and that piece of fuel fused at an atomic level and released more energy than was utilized to create the experiment. Now, this has always been the holy grail of a type. It's not about splitting atoms. It's about fusing them. People will be skeptical, rightly, as to whether this will really turn into anything. But we should also point out it has been decades to get to this point of incredible engineering thought. And we don't know what this now might turn into. If this was ultimately what it could be, then a cup of hydrogen fuel powers a house for hundreds of years. I mean, this is an unbelievable, potentially... I mean, they, they did use the world's yeah. biggest laser, so yeah, it's yeah, probably yeah. not no, going to no, be no. deployed next week, it's, but it's great. For it's sure. really this good. This doesn't mean that we can't carry on with everything else we're doing, but it's an incredible piece of breakthrough, incredible piece of news and a breakthrough. Here, here. Well done, science. Okay, but sh- linked to holistic thinking. Linked to holistic thinking. <laughs> 
So I think now we're going to turn to our interview. And this week we have a remarkable guest, Roshi Joan Halifax. And Christiana, you and Roshi Joan have been friends for many years. So I think it is probably most appropriate that you introduce her. Well, thanks, Tom. So um, Roshi Joan Halifax uh, is has a PhD degree in anthropology, which uh, has been a link between two, the two of us. But more importantly, she's a Buddhist teacher. She is the founder of what is known as the Upaya Zen Center located in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, where I have been several times, highly, highly recommended uh, to to be there for a few days. She's a social activist, uh, has written many, many books. Um, and very interestingly, she has been a pioneer in end-of-life care. She has specialized on uh, how do you sit, and not just sit in a physical way, but how do you sit emotionally, spiritually with those who are dying and with the loved ones of those who are dying. She has been working that uh, for many years and has included in that very difficult work, working with inmates uh, who uh, are facing their last days of life um, as well. And um, a beautiful work, very embraced by loving care and openness to uncertainty, which is so difficult for many of us to open up to. She's also the uh, leader of yearly hikes into the very high Himalayas, taking medical care to uh, Nepalese villages who, without this care that comes to them via her and her team, they would have absolutely no access to medical help. And she, you can imagine the strength of this woman in her 80s hiking up to, uh, to the high Himalayas. So quite, uh, qu quite a light, quite a pillar of light. And it is uh, my absolute joy and honor to be a friend of hers. And we were able to entice her to join us for uh, our last episode this year. So here she is. Yay, here we go. So Roshi Joan Halifax, it is so fantastic to finally have you here on our podcast. We have been uh, thinking about when do we bring you on? And it is such an honor and such a pleasure that we have you as the final guest for our podcast this year. Um, we would really love to send our listeners off with um, with inspiration, with motivation for the time that they have off from, from work and hopefully with family and friends. So um, you are our guiding light here. So no pressure on that one. Just get ready for that. <laughs> Thank you. So uh uh, Christiana, I, I'm uh, sitting here smiling. Uh, being a guiding light is a responsibility that I actually cannot take on, but I will do my best with my little candle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been a, a major guiding light for many years, so uh, no, no underappreciation here. Candles are very um, good. Candles are also good. But uh, for our listeners, um, just a little background of uh, when I first met uh, Roshi Joan, I had, of course, heard of her a lot. Uh, and I, she, we were both invited to, um, I guess, teach a course, if that's the right way, in Blue Spirit, which is a beautiful, wonderful retreat center here in Costa Rica. And I had never seen her, but I walked in to the big hall where all of this was, where the course was taking place. And I see this amazing figure sitting on the floor. Uh, and I just knew it was her. I just, I just totally knew it was her. And so I went over and bowed very deeply. I don't know if you remember that. And I just expressed my joy at finally meeting you in person. And we were just immediate, um, immediate friends. We then proceeded without any preparation uh, to, uh, to have several public chats in which 
I, the impertinent little uh, startup, dared to disagree with the authority that Roshi Joan is. And I did it, of course, in front of, I don't know how many hundreds of people were in the room. I didn't disagree <laughs> with her once. I disagreed with her maybe two or three times, throughout which Roshi Joan, with all love and understanding and patience, was just smiling and asking me another question. And I kept on insisting about my disagreement. So that uh, I've taken that, as Roshi Joan knows, I've taken that big, big lesson uh, and have really worked it through. And what would you know? I have come around to recognize that Roshi Joan was right all the time. But I have celebrated this friendship and this collaboration for many years, including including accepting a fantastic invitation that Roshi Joan made to me to join her up in the mountains of New Mexico and spend six days in solitary, uh, solitary living in a cave that, um, that she has prepared for those who want to be there for some time of reclusion and introspection. So here again, thank you very much for my six days um, in your wonderful cave. Oh, uh, Christiana, you were impressive in your uh, absence, uh, both um, absence from uh, the main cabin, which is always a temptation, but also uh, staying off your iPhone. Um, you would just march the length of the valley, which is about a mile long, back and forth to your cave retreat. And um, I would bow at a distance and think with delight, I didn't expect her to make it through a day. Now we're on day six. <laughs> I think I did get the odd WhatsApp, though, I have to say. I mean, not to dub you in. I think I did get the odd WhatsApp. Uh, you are a phenom, my dear, <laughs> in more ways than one. <laughs> That's true. So, um, Roshi Joan, maybe for our listeners who um, haven't been following and, and studying your teachings, Maybe um, a, a short introduction about the founding of the Upaya Center um, in New Mexico and what it is doing today. And then we will get into um, other conversations. Mm, thank you, Christiana. So I founded a Upaya Zen Center really on the principle of the relationship between social and environmental engagement and contemplative practice. And this was very much inspired by my relationship with Thich Nhat Hanh, whom I met in the mid-1960s, who became my teacher in the mid-1980s, and who exemplified this quality of courage that comes through this uh, deep experience of being a contemplative, a practitioner, and um, also comes through the experience of what it means to engage the world in a socially and an environmentally respectable, responsive, and responsible way. So Thai had a huge influence on me, as also did my third Zen teacher, Roshi Burning Glassman, who uh, sat with uh, unsheltered people in the streets of New York, uh, who sat in Auschwitz in the charnel ground of that concentration camp where I was so fortunate to join him, who went to Rwanda and did bearing witness retreats in Rwanda as well, and really exemplified this kind of courage of working in the charnel grounds um, of our society with a kind of spirit of uh, not knowing and of uh, opening ourselves to, you know, what is the truth of suffering and how can we encounter the truth of suffering in a transformational way. Um, and and Roshi, it, it goes without saying, and all of us would immediately agree, that this has been a really tough year. 
It's been a tough year for so many different reasons because of the unending war in Ukraine, because the pandemic is still lingering, because uh, of, of the inflation, because of the threats to so many millions of people who have to be choosing between fuel or food. I mean, on and on and on. It has been a very, very tough year. And for those involved in climate or in biodiversity, because we're right in the middle of the biodiversity convention negotiations, it's been a very tough year because we know that time is running out. We know that we have to do so much more than we're doing, and yet it's not getting done. And so it's leading, honestly, to 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 desperation um, and to the realization that these challenges, as they become more and more intertwined with each other, seem to be more and more overwhelming to us um, and completely unpredictable. We are in a world of total, total uncertainty where things that we think are going to go in one direction then move to another direction and by, where we think they're going to go disastrous, they move positive and where we think they're going to positive, they move to, to, to not so positive. The uncertainty, the constant daily uncertainty that we're living in is, um, has been very, very difficult to deal with. And so in, in the midst of all of that, um, we would love to talk to you or hear from you rather about resilience where mm. does because it it does seem like that's the only possible response that we can have to all of this turmoil what is resilience where does it come from how do we cultivate it why is it even important does resilience seem to you to be the um the tool that we should reach for now this is a, such an important question uh, christiana i i first want to say that um uh in order for us to be authentically resilient, I think we have to uh, face the realities of the day. And the realities of the day are very much as you have characterized them. They're catastrophic. And um, the magnitude uh, of our current reality is um, difficult for anyone to put their arms around because it's not just the catastrophe of our climate. It is our economic system. It is millions of people uh, fleeing from uh, oppressive climate conditions. It is war. Um, it is racism. It is corruption in politics. I mean, it's a big package. And so the first thing I believe that needs to happen is that um, we are we have a very clear picture to the extent that we are able of what is the current situation, knowing that the future is very uncertain, but actually the future the future is always uncertain. Now, how do we have a clear picture? Um, how do we see or how do we look deeply? And, you know, why is um, contemplative practice relevant here? It actually allows us to familiarize ourselves with the content of our own mental continuum, with our reactivities, with um, our fear quotients, and with our biases, and to begin to transform um, our way of perceiving the world. And it is just down in the you know weeds work that uh, allows us to even begin to uh, touch into the theme of resilience. In fact, um, I have kind of recrafted uh, this notion of resilience, and I use two terms. Uh, one of those terms is flexibility. You know, a, a metaphor in uh, Zen Buddhism for this kind of flexibility is of bamboo, which can bend infinitely in uh, the fierce of uh, most fierce of winds, but does not break. So that pliability is the, our strong back, our capacity to uphold ourselves in the midst of any conditions. And it takes practice for most of us to develop that equanimity, that strength, um, that balance, which allows us to actually be in the charnel ground of all of the changes that we're experiencing now. 
That strong back is complemented by soft front. In other words, by compassion. Our capacity to perceive things clearly, to lend or give our attention to the conditions of our world or what is happening before us, not different. Our capacity uh, to really tune into um, our motivation, which is one that is based in deep concern for the well-being of others, not just our personal small self well-being. So our motivation is really key in uh, this whole process of meeting the suffering of this world. And also our capacity to see deeply. In other words, do we have the attentional balance to actually see what is going on clearly? And then the motivation uh, to act. So this metaphor of strong back, soft front is one that we use often here at the center in our training of clinicians and, and of activists as the kind of paradigm, if you will, that we want to activate, not the strong front and the soft back. The soft back is fear. The strong front is, you know, defensiveness, our biases, um, our resistance, a hardening up. And um, for many, it is about shifting uh, that dynamic. And also our commitment uh, to restoration. In other words, indeed, um, we are facing uh, a very complex situation where, uh, how can I say, uh, it's not just the suffering of the human species, it's the suffering of many different species. And we're facing this sixth mass extinction even as I speak now. So I'm reminded of some words of the palliative care physician, Sunita Puri, who said, you know, the prelude to compassion is the willingness to see. The willingness to see. So we are being admonished to cultivate the strength and the courage to look deeply but to look in such a way so as not to be traumatized by what we're perceiving, but to actually uh, be, if you will, inspired to meet the world again and again by what we're perceiving. So I want to say a few things uh, about um, so-called uh, resilience. These uh, perspectives really come out of the field of practice. Uh, my work uh, for many decades of working with uh, human suffering, and also the, the work of Dr. Cinder Rushton and uh, the late Stephen Southwick. We often frame things, as you have pointed out, Christiana, from uh, a deep and negative bias. I mean, actually, that's what's portrayed in our social media. That's portrayed, you know, uh, in uh, newspapers, in uh, conferences, uh, in, you know, uh, the uh, many uh, organizations around the world. What sells in a weird kind of way is suffering. You, you said our media is colonizing us with hopelessness. I thought that was a beautiful phrase. Exactly. Now, it's our, our ability to actually reframe these situations, not from the perspective of positive psychology, just pasting over a nice, uh, using a nice feeling, if you will, pasting over a big wound of suffering. It is actually to understand um, that uh, our experience of connection with the truth of suffering can be profoundly transformational. And this is called in you know the world of psychology post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. So our our capacity to actually reframe difficult situations in a way that is fundamentally generative affects not only our mindset, our attitude, but also affects our, <laughs> if you will, the mindset of all those around us.
So Rushy Jones, may, 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 I wanted to check that my, some lo- sort of logic here that I've, I think I've, I've l- learned from from uh, your 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 teaching and understanding. The the, the 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 point of not having finding fault with the present, I realize, is a large concept, but it's actually a very a deep and beautiful one because that is really where we are. Uh, your point that we cannot over-identify with suffering because we are overwhelmed, but if we under-identify with suffering, we, we get that hard front. But the, perhaps the most transformational thing that you said, Roshi Joan, that, that touched me very deeply is for us to connect with our purpose. Why are we here? And that yeah. being perhaps a, a core organizing principle. It, it, do I understand this? That's beautiful. And I, I have to thank you for actually um, connecting with my work. So I, I appreciate uh, your interest, your curiosity. And it's true. <laughs> So, you know, this um, uh, wonderful uh, sentence, do not find fault with the present. Uh, Most people go, what do you mean the present is a mess? And actually what it means is uh, not that the present isn't a mess, not that there isn't suffering in the present, but it's to perceive the present for what it is, as it is, and, and not to blame it which is like a second arrow, but to see it clearly and not to flee it. So uh, I've always, this is from uh, Zen master Kazan, who came after Ehe Dogen uh, in his Denkaroku, the the transmission of light. I picked it up out of his Teisho, out of his teachings and going, ah, yeah, we will find fault with the present, which actually... uh, cultivates bias within us. What we're uh, asked to do in this situation is to perceive clearly without bias. Mm. And this does not mean to say, of course, Paul, that um, we do not hold those who engender harm accountable. Accountability is essential. So, uh, I I just wanted to gloss on that point of the various points that you shared, including um, the point about empathy. You know, our capacity to be in resonance um, with another or with a situation where suffering is very present is really important. And um, it is, I have said, I'm sure you know it, a world without empathy is a world where we are dead to each other. Mm-hmm. But over identification with suffering or objectification of suffering, that's all on a continuum. We're looking for that middle path where we are not experiencing empathic distress, Hmm. or we're not experiencing alienation, but we're in that sweet spot uh, of identification, but insight, I am in resonance with the suffering I am perceiving, and that suffering um, is that person's experience, not mine. Hmm. So So difficult balance to strike that one that you've just described, right? It's a very difficult balance because we tend to go to one extreme or the other just out of habit, I guess. Tom called me on over-identification about something this morning. What was it, Tom, (laughs) that you said? Yeah, (laughs) over-identification. What was that? I can't remember, actually. But um, but now that I've got the floor up, can, can I ask you a question, Roshi Joan? And I just want to go one level deeper on an example, because I have a lot of conversations with listeners who really want to connect with their purpose and the moment that we're in. And what I often hear is that when people get reminded by the news or by a thought of the fact that we're running out of time, how serious things have gotten, how late the hour is, how bad the impacts might be. It creates this sort of breathless anxiety, which then feeds its way through into behavior. And so I just love you to, I'm sure you've had lots of people ask you questions like that before. What should people (laughs) do in that moment where they want to find a doorway into a type of perception that you're describing here? Should they use the breath? Should they focus on their body? What what encouragement or words of advice would you give people? 
You know, I think one of the most important things is um, being able to actually identify the fact that you are in a state of upregulation, mm. of distress. Mm. That um, that moment when you recognize that you're in it um, provides, if you will, the means for shifting it, for transforming that state. And it could be... Uh, through a metacognitive approach that is, and I actually use this a lot myself, um, where I remember this pain I'm experiencing or this uh, anxiety I'm experiencing, it's impermanent. What can I learn from what I'm going through right now? So it's a respectful, curious approach mm. um, to this dysregulated state. Or one can use the breath as a kind of anchor. Or, most importantly, one can see the truth of suffering. And this is something His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, uses all of the time, which is this uh, altruistic uh, impulse, um, which is, uh, you know, what can I do to serve others who are suffering? And the Dalai Lama uh, is very clear that the cure for fear and futility, the cure for hopelessness, if you will, um, is this cultivation of an altruistic heart, an mm. altruistic mind. Mm. That's beautiful. How can I be of benefit to others? Mm. Mm. Christiana, do you want to close us out with outrage and optimism? I'm not ready to close. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have um, one other one other question. Go for if, it, Paul. If I Go may, um, Rashi Joan, it's something that I think applies so deeply to climate change specifically. You've talked about uh, non-referential compassion, which is um, being more, I, I suppose, conscious of a distributed self. I even enjoyed your story of. The the, the the late great Gregory Bateson pointing to mind as not in the head but between the two speakers and this 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 distributed self which other people have evoked in different senses how can we find compassion for that that is that is sort of kind of beyond the definite and the more universal compassion you know I think we have to most of us take baby steps um, sometimes uh, we take on the suffering of the world, and it becomes rather meaningless. But if yeah. our child is dysregulated, um, if our neighbor is dysregulated, um, if our pet, our dog is dying, and there we connect and in a relational way, in an intimate way with suffering, and it becomes, if you will, a kind of stepping stone um, to larger and larger fields of identity. So, you know, feeling, you know, if I think about the magnitude of our climate catastrophe, I actually, it, I just look at it and I feel helpless. What can I do? You know, as I, I'm recycling, it's really important to do that. Um, we have, uh, as Christiana knows we're off the grid, up in the mountains, all on solar. We uh, harvest and care for every drop of water that uh, comes into our valley. But these are small acts, humble acts that actually add up. If we all engage in these intimate, small-scale feeling acts of blessedness, if you will, um, we uh, have the capacity to not only have a sense of uh, depth and meaning and care in our lives, but if we all did it, um, we would, of course, affect fundamental change in our world. And even though we all probably won't do it, because that's just how our human race is structured at this time, still we show up. And I think that sensibility of showing up, uh, the sense of purpose, of meaning, of uh, efficacy, and how we serve others, 
builds a sense of integrity within our own character and through our own relationships. And I want to just mention one story, if I can, to finish uh, our time together. Um, here at uh, Upaya, we just marked uh, the Enlightenment, the Awakening of the Buddha, which is done traditionally in our uh, community uh, every December 8th. And we were focusing on what is called Green Dharma uh, through a very powerful uh, teaching called the Avatamsaka Sutra. And it's it was you know so wonderful to have young teachers and older teachers, including Kaz Tanahashi, who's eighty nine years old, deliver this message again and again that we must take responsibility and realize the the truth of interconnectedness in order for there to be environmental and social transformation in the world. And Sensei Kozan told the story of an extraordinary woman called Josephine Henrietta Mandamin, who is an Anishinaabe uh, elder. She died several years ago, a First Nations elder. And she's the one who helped found the water protectors movement in our country. And she was instrumental during the Dakota Access Pipeline protests at Standing Rock Indian Reservation by singing, praying. But most importantly, imagine this, this lone elder walking with a bucket of water in her hand, slowly but surely around the Great Lakes, covering over the course of her lifetime, nearly 25,000 miles, just carrying a single bucket of water, illuminating our sacred connection to water. Never uh, in her mind, I am sure, with any idea that she would be starting a movement, a movement of water walkers, a movement of cherishing the waters, a movement that transformed the situation in relation to the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock and in other indigenous lands. One bucket of water and one old woman. We wow. do not know what the outcome will be of our actions. But we do have this sense of profound alignment in doing the right thing, of showing up, no matter how small that bucket is, the water that she carried, the steps that she took, brought into being a movement that is alive today across our planet. One bucket of water. And one elderly woman in unison right how beautiful what what a strong image there of our intimate relationship between who we are as people and who we are as part of nature right one elderly woman and uh and one bucket of water beautiful story thank you roshi john thank you for for sharing that beautiful story so as you know, I could sit here for hours and chat with you and learn from you at your feet. But sadly, we do have to come to a close to this episode. And Roshi, we, um, we always end our podcast conversations asking our guests, in the context of what we've just chatted about, what are you still outraged about? And I love... I'm very excited to hear your answer. How? What does a Buddhist teacher who practices equanimity, what is she still outraged about? I'm very excited to hear your answer about that one. Um, and what are you optimistic or hopeful about? Because we begin to see the rays of light on that one. Well, it's interesting that you asked this question about outrage because it was a little bit my... Uh, what could I say, my MO 
uh, in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Not a little bit, but a can... lot of your MO. <laughs> yeah. But I'm in my 80s now. And I actually am living uh, in this sense of uh, engaged optimism, more, much more than outrage. Uh, and as a result of that, I'm a healthier person, actually. <laughs> so what am I optimistic about? I'm optimistic about the younger generation. Mm. I'm optimistic about uh, people of color, BIPOC. I'm optimistic about the uh, traditional ecological knowledges that are being uh, activated at this time uh, of indigenous peoples' uh, great understanding of how to live in harmony with our earth, Henrietta being an example, but also uh, I who live in the Southwest in uh New Mexico, where 750,000 acres uh, were burned by wildfire this summer, throwing massive amounts of carbon into the air. And this uh, carbon sequestering capacity of our forests was diminished by some percentage because of inappropriate technologies being applied by white people, if I can say it, in uh, the control of fire. So I am optimistic about what we can learn from indigenous peoples, humbly so, but also with great interest. Mm. And I'm optimistic about you, Christiana. Aww. You are such a force mm. for good. And I love your energy, your spark and spunk. So I thank you for this opportunity to share a few thoughts with your Maha community. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, um, Rochi. That's very, very generous of you. And it is it is the three of us and all our listeners that are really so grateful for you to, to, to sing us out at the end of the year, uh, to take us on your wings and, uh, and really take us to higher level of engagement and deeper level of engagement, both at the same time. So thank you so much. I'm very sad that we have to say goodbye, but I'm not saying goodbye to you because I will see you very soon in Costa Rica. I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Rushi Joan. Thank you so much, Rushi Joan. Love you so much. Love you. Thank you. So what a privilege to get a chance to speak to Rushi Joan. Christiana, you've talked to us about her for a long time, but... Wow, she really, you you really didn't overestimate her. This is um, this is incredible. Um, so, what do you both leave that conversation with? Well, if I can jump in, I mean, I I just leave it with again renewed um, admiration for the depth of her commitment, and um, she she is the teacher from whom I learned this amazing concept of strong back, soft front. That is four very, very simple words, uh, but that encompass such a deep insight as to how do we show up in the world. And, and we've been talking a lot uh, over the years on this podcast about how do we show up. And there cannot be a clearer synopsis, a clear summary of how to show up, but rather with a strong back and a soft front, and not the opposite, as she has so eloquently explained. It's been, you know, something that has been very helpful to me over the years, and I was, I was so grateful that she brought it up in the conversation. Mm, yeah, well, I mean, what can you say? I, I think that this absence of any kind of holistic thinking, you know, since the Enlightenment, we have, you know, all this kind of scientific knowledge that's building up and the incredible achievements of science, but then you know, as organized religion has declined in society for all kinds of reasons that I sort of understand, actually, but the absence of, of holistic thinking. And, and I think that the Buddhism that I've encountered tangentially from, from you, Christiana and Tom, seems like a, a, a sort of, um, 
you, you know, holistic thinking without the need for the idea of a sort of over overbearing God, but a way of, of trying to... Yeah, yeah, there's things. no dogma attached to any of this, right? It, it honestly is just life wisdom. That's all it is. How can we be better human beings on this planet during the time that we're here, period? It's not about dogma. It's not about, uh, you know, any kind of religious beliefs. It's It really is just life wisdom. But, but that empathy, also recognizing like, you know, people talk about climate change, you know, people talking about getting overwhelmed. So, so, so wonderful to hear her, you know, recognize, you know, that whilst that, you know, you have like a non-duality, there is also separation. And, you know, I've got a sort of slightly silly version of this that, uh, you know, I grew up in a medical family. Every Christmas day, one of my parents was a hospital doctor. Every Christmas day I would go to hospital. I associate hospitals as sort of like very normal things. And and kind of death is a really normal thing, to be honest with you. And, and you know, the, 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 the thing about one of these 10 rules for doctors is it's, it's, it's a jokey rule, but it's kind of funny. It says like the patient is the one with the disease, right? This is what you have to remember. And to some extent, the fact that we're working on climate change doesn't mean that we're ill. You know, mm. we, we don't we don't want to confuse, you know, empathy with negativity. You know, that actually we may, and part of Rashi Jones teaching is that, you know, these moments of crisis can actually bring out the best in people and and, and allow for enormous growth. So that's a that's just a, a positive yeah. reflection on her amazing way of that, looking at things. It's such a it's, it's such an important point that you make there, Paul. Because what what I'm learning from these various teachers is we have to be able to recognize the strong emotions that we have, right? Not turn away from our sadness, our despair, you know, our anxiety, not turn away from it, recognize it because otherwise it just comes up to bite us. And at the same time, understand that the despair and the anxiety, the grief and the sadness is not us. It is a part of me but it is not me. Mm. And being able to find that space between the deep emotion and who I am allows me to then make space for other feelings and other emotions, such as engagement and commitment to providing solutions. Because the the moment that we think that we have been over overruled, if you will, or overtaken by the anxiety, the grief, the despair, and that that is us, then there's no oxygen there. Then there's no capacity to do, uh, to help, to contribute to any solution. So it's that space between the emotions. It's not denying the emotion, but it is opening a space between the emotion and who am I? Yeah. I think that's extremely well put and I think very well, very helpful for people to be able to identify that you can have multiple different experiences and emotions in relation to this enormous change that we're facing and you will go through all sorts of experiences. And And I think we as the climate movement need to be careful to allow that to be the case. I was, I remember heard someone say when I was at COP27 that if you're not depressed and anxious, then you're not paying attention. Well, actually, of course, there are lots of reasons to be depressed and anxious, but it because things are bad, it doesn't mean we need to be depressed and anxious all the time. There may be an experience of that, but then you move through that to other emotions in response to what we're facing, which is what we need to do in order to find the courage and the determination to pivot that to action. So so let's not assume or apply or police each other saying we need to have a certain emotional reaction to where we are in order for that to be valid. Because as we've just heard, actually, this is a journey that we're all on and we're all finding our way on our own and with each other. And in many different ways. And in many different ways. It's a challenge that needs analysis and not paralysis. A final thing, reading an article that uh, uh, Rosh Hashanah had written, she quoted Vaclav Havel, one of the, this wonderful quote. You, you, we've, I'm sure we've, we've said it before, that hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of yes. how it turns out. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Um, as you've said that, should we just mention to listeners... Um, Former guest on this podcast, Joanna Macy, is currently ill in hospital. Christiana, I wonder if you want to say anything about that before we close out because it's something to keep Yes, up. Joanna yeah. Macy is a, an amazing, amazing, also an amazing teacher to so many. She is a climate activist, an ecologist. She uh, she does deep ecology. She's one of the deepest thinkers mm. in deep ecology mm. um, and has been with us for, uh, for, for quite a few decades 
uh, reminding us of all of these insights that Rushi Joan has just uh, laid out before and us. Active and active hope, of course, was her big thing. And was, active hope, which yeah. is her, yeah. yes, which is her book um, and her uh, and her motto, I would say. Um, and what she means with active hope is to to keep ourselves on the positive, but do it actively, right? Engage, engage, yeah. engage. So, uh, so really quite, uh, and, and she's been an inspiration to many people in the climate movement, in social issues. She's just been such an inspiration and such a pillar of light. And she is, um, she is in, in, in the hospital with pneumonia. Uh, her daughter reported today that she is feeling, um, somewhat better, which is very good news. But, but, but she's, uh, up there in age. Well, hold on, Claire. She's in her mid nineties. Yeah. She's in yeah. her mid nineties. Yeah. Thank you. So we'll wow. we'll link to the episode, but people can keep her in mind because she's been a real yes. guiding light yeah. for so many. Look in the show notes for for yeah. some more of the wonderful Joanna Mason. Yeah. So this is it, folks. The end of twenty twenty three. Thank you for being with us again on this remarkable journey. No, it's the end of twenty twenty two, isn't it? It's the beginning of 2023. I can't believe yeah. I got that wrong. And for secondly, neither of you picked me up on it. That's right. <laughs> it's 2028. The, you know. It's the end of 2022, beginning of 2023. Um, another critical year. We will be with you. We'll be back uh, towards the end of January, I think. So we're going to take a bit of a break over the holiday season. Hope you all have a wonderful time with loved ones and a great beginning of the year. And we will play you out as ever with some music. This week, we are bringing you a beautiful piece of music from Windsor. The song is called Drift Away. So hope you enjoy this. Have a great break over the holiday season. We'll see you next year. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Enjoy yourselves. Enrich yourselves. Uh, take a very needed rest and come back re-energized next year for more to do. Bye. 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 Hi, I'm Windsor from Santa Cruz, California, and you're about to hear my song Drift Away, which is track six on my debut EP, Where the Redwoods Meet the Sea. Drift Away is a song about loss and grief, and specifically to me, the song is about losing my father when I was 22. Each verse chronicles the past, present, and future feeling of loss and grief and how it affects you.
playing cards But no one ever comes Someday you'll know Cause the clocks Are ticking on the ground So there you go, another episode, end of year episode of Outrage and Optimism. Wow, what a year it's been. Thank you to everyone. Thank you to everyone who has listened this year. We owe it to you that we even have a podcast. And so take that with you, you know, that you made this year possible. Thank you. Uh, And not only thank you for listening, but thank you for sharing this podcast. We learned at the end of this year that both Outrage and Optimism and The Way Out is In, which is a podcast we co-produced with our friends at Plum Village, available wherever you get your podcasts. We're both in the top 1% of most shared podcasts on Spotify. And again, that's all because of you. So thank you. You've made this an incredible year for us. Thank you. We should have a party or something. Are there any... If you're a listener that likes throwing parties... Uh, email us. My name is Clay. I'm the producer of Outrage and Optimism. And this week's track that you heard was Drift Away by Windsor. So this EP that Jordan mentioned at the top of the song, Jordan being the artist Windsor, this EP, Where the Redwoods Meet the Sea, is start to finish. Just a joy to listen to. Um, I just finished spinning it for the second time and it's pop sensibilities wrapped in funk and some drive and measure. And I know he's West Coast, but this really does have a Midwest indie flavor to it that, you know, me being a Midwest kid, I just, I just immediately connect with. I love it. It's fantastic. I love this. Uh, Short EPs that are front to back, no skips. Very, very well done, Windsor. Thank you for letting us uh, listen to you and uh, share you on our show. Some exciting things to check out in the show notes. Windsor did a song recently with Macklemore, uh, performed it on Jimmy Kimmel, even did an Audio Tree live session, which is available both on streaming services to listen to, but also to view on YouTube. All of this waiting for you to listen, watch, and enjoy over the holiday break in the show notes. Where the Redwoods Meet the Sea EP. Windsor, everyone. Thank you to Roshi Joan Halifax for coming on the podcast. It's been a while. We wanted to have her on a while ago, and it just took a minute. But we are so grateful to be having her on for our end-of-year episode. Uh, You can check out her books, uh, more about the Upaya Center, and much more in the description, you know, in the show notes, however you like to call it. It's all there waiting for you. And, of course, it was mentioned towards the end of the episode, but the work of Joanna Macy is also in the description, including our episode with her previously on the podcast. Um, We're sending all our love and energy to Joanna for a full recovery and look forward to good news. Okay, wow. Uh, That's episode 184. Another episode of The Way Out Is In is coming out this weekend for your holiday enjoyment. I'm not ready to say goodbye, but I know I have to. It's been a fantastic year and looking forward to another one with you. The best way to not miss the first episode or any episode after that of this podcast when it comes out next year is to hit subscribe or follow. We will see you in the new year. Love to you all. Bye.